if I join a company today as a software engineer, I'm not building a, a to-do list or like a whole website like from scratch. I'm probably digging deep into a code base that's existed for years that has like some obscure errors or things like that that like need to be fixed and or you need to like make sure this is this feature is compatible with this and this API, whatever, like stuff like that. But a lot of it is like dealing with code that's been there, that is there and has been there for years. And you have to like figure out how to consume that. And I think that a lot of newer developers haven't gotten used to doing that before they start their job. That's why I think like open source contributions are really important when you are a new developer, because it gets you into that habit of like diving into a new code base, understanding other people's code knowing how to like do PRs and talk to other people about like what you're doing in the code base and stuff like that. I think that's much more reflective of what your work is going to be like once you're actually like officially employed. Did that even answer your question? No, but I thought it was an interesting perspective. (laughs) All right, everybody, listen up. I got a good one for you. Gatsby is the fastest front end for the headless web. If your goal is building highly performant, content-rich websites, you need to build with Gatsby. Go to gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow to launch your first Gatsby site in minutes and experience the speed. Go on over, support the show. That's gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow. Hello, hello, everybody. I am Ben Popper, and you are listening to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thanks for joining us. I am here, as I often am, with my wonderful co-hosts, Sierra Ford and Cassidy Williams. Hi, y'all. Hi. So before we you know, get into the serious topics, I want to do something light. Let's discuss the quantum internet. This is like real simple, <laughs> basic stuff we can all agree on. I took one class in quantum physics as a freshman in college. It was like, if you're, if you're going to take any physics class, you might as well take this one because it's so weird that like, you know, you don't have to be good at math to get a great grade because we're not going to get into the math because the math is just bananas. Like you just have to like, read the books and, you know, sort of say, at least understand. So one of the crazy things in quantum mechanics, which is the way physics and the universe work at the very, very tiny Ant-Man level, is that things can be connected even if there's no physical connection between them. So I don't know if you've heard of this, but the classic example is called Schrodinger's cats. Have you heard of his cats? Nope. So in the quantum realm, If two quantum particles are entangled and you put one in a box with one cat and one in a box with another cat and you put them at opposite sides of the universe and you open the first box, the cat in the second box will be impacted. If that particle released poison, that cat would die. If the particle released food, that cat would be fed. That's just the way quantum mechanics works. And Einstein called it spooky interaction at a distance, I think was his, or eerie you know, he was like, this is weird. Has this like been proven or is it just like made up? Well, according to this story <laughs> in the New York Times, a lot of big companies are spending a lot of money to get to get make quantum computers work. Google declared that they had figured out quantum supremacy, which is like, we have a computer that can do what a normal computer can't. Only a quantum computer could do this, IBM. And so the thing is now you need to be able to send quantum data, which is very different. So this article said they had essentially teleported some data. They interacted with it in one place and the state of the data on the other end changed and they did not touch, no data was sent. Now, obviously I can't explain how that happened. I don't know how to process this information in my brain. This is going to sound so silly, but it sounds kind of like the time travel conundrum in Avengers 
Infinity War or or Endgame or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Endgame when like they were trying to figure out how to like go back in time and get the stones and all that kind of stuff. And I right. I feel like I remember Quantum something being yes. mentioned. Am I correct? I mean, granted, that is sci-fi fantasy stuff, but this also feels like sci-fi fantasy stuff. Exactly. That's the only thing I can, like, connect it to that I've actually, like, real life experienced, I guess you could say. And, like, also, like, you know, you're sort of saying it's like once you change one thing, it has to change this other thing. Like, if you go back in time, you're going to mess with the timeline. You know, you'll never be able to fully set it right. Like, you go, but, you know, it's always, there's always some cascade of effects. But, yeah, I guess, like, just interesting to think about that we'd have to have a new, entirely new way of sending, you know, reading, writing, receiving data if quantum computing was to become a thing. I hadn't thought about that. I was just like, oh, well, they'll just do the calculations faster and I'll just send it right. over the internet. Like a supercomputer. Like a, like a supercomputer <laughs> should. As it turns out, it would have to be sort of a whole new network with really funny challenges. Like part of the challenge is that the qubit, which is the bit that's both a one and a two at the same time, if you read it, it breaks down and becomes an ordinary bit. It's no longer a quantum bit. So that's why you have to like read one over here and it writes one over the, again, <laughs> I'm acting like I know I'm talking, I have no idea how this works. And I know it sounds like it should, it's the opposite of logical physics. It's like, it sounds like m- made up magic. I wonder if this is actually going to like pan out, especially since like you mentioned Google and IBM are like investing yeah. in like researching or whatever. Yeah. Is- space in computer science i don't know i wonder if it'll actually catch and like actually impact our industry and if that happens when it happens i don't know how are we supposed to adapt to that i imagine that if this does like wow we figured it out everybody's doing quantum computing now like that'll be years (laughs) like years down the line hopefully like We'll all be retired by then. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't know. It breaks my brain so much that like this whole, again, entanglement concept that you talk about where where two different things are suddenly entangled and you can't describe them individually anymore because they are separate but the same. I don't understand how that works. Like I'm sure I could take many classes and figure it out at some point, but it doesn't make sense in my brain I mean, the way they they did it, you know, they tried to have sort of like a, a layman's explanation here. They had these three different, basically, qubits in a carbon nucleus, and they sort of entangled the electrons through these quantum operations. And then as they would mess with one, they would see a change in the other, even though they were 60 feet apart. And I guess one of the cool things they said about this was, For example, you could then send a message to someone over the internet that could never be intercepted because it doesn't, it only exists in in point A and point B and it doesn't travel between them. Okay. (laughs) So then that I think makes more sense. So like, I'm guessing because there is like really no like point where aside from the two parties involved in the data being sent, there's no way to intercept. Maybe that would make it like more secure. Yeah. I guess. Possibly a cool function of it. A quantum blockchain. Mm, now we're talking. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. No, but like, I like <laughs> the idea of it potentially improving some kind of accessibility of knowledge. Like, right. it, it could be cool where, like, right now we think about, okay, people with slow internet connections, people who don't have access to X, Y, and Z. I love the idea of that, where if it happens so fast that it doesn't require 
as much computing power maybe to send. Another example that was proposed was we send these satellites out into deep space and after a certain point, they can't send back information. Like they tell us what's happening in Mars and then Neptune and then they're just kind of gone. The data can't be sent back. So if in the future they had a quantum system that was entangled with one on Earth, then they could send the data back instantaneously and from much farther away, theoretically. You know, like when we're all living on Mars, this is how we'll communicate with, <laughs> with them, I guess. I don't I don't understand how something on Mars could talk to something on Earth without a connection. And we're probably gonna look back on this like in the future when we're all old, be years like, from now. Remember when we didn't understand cells. this? Because I'm sure like How can you send pictures over the air to a box in my house if the people aren't right. there? It's like that. It's like, I kind of feel like though, maybe maybe this quantum computing at the start at least will have very specific use cases because i can't imagine that if this comes to fruition everyone would just be like yeah we're switching to the quantum network whatever that means (laughs) they're like impossible to have that you have to like keep them frozen at like four negative 400 degrees like the computers themselves are completely impractical in every way they're like giant upside down chandeliers dipped in liquid nitrogen you know like <laughs> yeah they're not there's no quantum laptop there's only like these big goofy machines <laughs> sorry in the lab. i can't believe quantum laptop is like a thing but anyway or could you, <laughs> but i could see like i don't know maybe like the fbi has like quantum computing to keep all the yeah their spies are safe and get yeah. information yeah uh, <laughs> i'm thinking about this <laughs> meme where it's just a bunch of clowns looking at each other and there's like a rainbow between their brains i feel Mm. like we are the clowns right now but with quantum computing the thoughts between our brains happens i don't know it's it's a speed of thought well if you're listening and you have any thoughts feel free to hit us up if you have a good way to explain this or you think you understand how it works in a way that three people without much quantum computing experience can understand we're happy we're all ears already All right, I have one more topic I brought to the table I'd like to discuss. So this was a report from Retool. Um, they interviewed about five or 600 engineers just about how they use their time. So the top sort of line stuff here, you know, didn't seem that interesting to me, but I guess I just want to put it out there. The first kind of headline was, we're all running other people's code. You know, when we think of a software engineer, we think of them writing brand new features. But in 2022, the vast majority of it is actually building on top of an open source library, reusing code from other parts of a company's code base or from online tutorials. And they said, you know, the sort of more junior or the newer somebody is to software development, the more they do this. So just curious, does that ring true? And do you think that that's okay? Like it's fine that newer people are not doing as much sort of original work or like generative work? I have lots to say about this. I feel like a lot of people who are learning to code either in university, bootcamp, whatever, like pre-employment, pre-official like software engineering employment, spend a lot of time building projects from scratch where you are building features and like apps or websites or whatever, like completely from the ground up. One thing I've said before, and I've heard a lot of like more experienced people in the industry say, is that that doesn't really reflect what the day-to-day is like on the job. If I join a company today as a software engineer, I'm not building a a to-do list or like a whole website like from scratch I'm probably digging deep into a code base that's existed for years that has like some obscure errors or things like that that like need to be fixed and or you need to like make sure this is this feature is compatible with this and this API whatever like stuff like that but a lot of it is like dealing with code that's been there that is there and has been there for years and you have to like figure out how to consume that and I think that a lot of newer developers 
haven't gotten used to doing that before they start their job. That's why I think like open source contributions are really important when you are a new developer because it gets you into that habit of like diving into a new code base, understanding other people's code, knowing how to like do PRs and talk to other people about like what you're doing in the code base and stuff like that. I think that's much more reflective of what your work is going to be like once you're actually like officially employed. Did they even answer your question? No, but I thought it was an interesting perspective. <laughs> well, no, I think you answered my no, you did answer my question. You said that this makes sense practically, and yeah. it's not exactly correlated with the way people learn. And so maybe there's something we should change there, right? Because right. okay, I okay. think when people learn, it's it's like working in a vacuum. Like when you run a physics experiment, things happen in a vacuum. But then in real life, there's a lot more factors. It's the exact same thing where when you're learning, you're in a very sanitized space of coding on a very perfect thing. And you can fix every single bug because it's a smaller project. But then when you're in a real world system, it's messy and, and there's a lot to deal with. And, and I agree with you completely, Sior. I think open source is incredibly important and essential to learning and contributing and also just understanding what a big code base could be, especially for new learners. Yeah. yeah, it's actually interesting that you sort of did that because th that's a natural segue. So the next sort of piece was looking at how often folks are using open source code uh, as part of their job. And so something like 70, 80% are doing it once a month, 30, 40% once a week, and 10, 11%, you know, more than once a week. So the vast majority, at least once a month, and a you know sizable chunk, at least once a week are having to interact with open source code. I thought that was kind of an interesting statistic. Yeah, I would honestly argue that it's probably more. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking. Yeah, because I, I think like, again, we're all kind of relying on various libraries and, and things that people have built. And, and there's like an XKCD meme where it's just like all this infrastructure is relying on this one volunteer in Omaha who has been maintaining it for decades. Yeah. Like, I think even though you might not be like, specifically querying a certain API or or a certain library, you're still building on open source software. Everybody is, because that's just the core of so many systems. And it's like impossible not to at this point. Like I guarantee if you look at some of your dependencies, a lot of them are going to be like libraries that you're relying on that are open source. So yeah. So and yeah. if you're reinventing the wheel, you're wasting time. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, a lot absolutely. of times, why would you build your own router, for example, when React Router exists? Like, wh why would you build your own content management system when WordPress exists? There's so many things that are open source out there and available for you to build off of. Why would you build these very base data structures and, and then build off from it if you don't have to? This might tie to your original question, too, Ben. Like, I, when I was first learning how to code, I used to think that was cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think it was cheating to like, like use other people's code and like use right. like, cause I was learning Python at the time and there's like a bunch of like Python libraries out there. And I was like, I shouldn't be using this. Like I should be like coding this from scratch. Isn't that like me che cheating? Like as a developer, I should be able to code this thing. And like, under like I was having a whole exis existential crisis over this. And I think like that kind of ties into what you were saying about how like on the day to day, is a junior developer like working on existing code aside from like building stuff from scratch right. bad? I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think it's just like working smarter, not harder, especially as a new developer. If I try to rebuild like some of the libraries and things like that that I like rely on now to get to get projects up and running, I would get nowhere. Like I barely finish projects now as is, um. let alone like trying to do everything <laughs> from scratch. So Completely. And you're not alone. I mean, the next sort of section in the retool thing here is, you know, lines of code 
committed code copied and pasted from other sources throughout the week. And so, you know, from senior managing engineers to ICs, you know, somewhere between 10 and 100 lines, people are saying that's what the vast majority of people think they copy and paste into the code base every week. So like a very common thing to say like, okay, I need this function or feature. I know it's been built here really well. I'm going to go grab it and try to plug it in. And the next section actually just kind of to come back is like, again, what is our fantasy of what like a coder does at home? It's like, open the laptop, write something new, like hit enter, you know, it runs or like get in the mainframe, like creating hacking away. something from nothing. Exactly. <laughs> but when people, you know, sort of, sort of try to work out what are they doing, 32% of the time is like testing changes. 31% of the time is focused on recruiting other people to come work with you. And another 30% of the time is like firefighting, you know, urgent reactive work because something's not working or a customer's complaining. And then that, that leaves you like 10%, if that, to like build new stuff, you know? Exactly. I think that's pretty accurate. I know, like, I would say that, like, especially when it comes to copying, pasting, like, I'll just say that that's not cheating. Like yeah. I said, I used to think it was like, if I go to Stack Overflow, I should be able to like code this from memory and not like have to copy off of someone else's work. Like, <laughs> exactly. Copy and pasting from like other resources is kind of, it helps you to get the real work done, I guess you could say. Like, I think too, like, like you said, 30% of people's day-to-day is like fixing bugs that people complain about. Like that's a huge <laughs> part of it too. Do you know what I mean? Like that, it doesn't sound as fantastic and as like inspiring as like building a new UI and like making like, <laughs> these funk, like that doesn't sound as glamorous, but it's still like important work and it still keeps the company running and the, the product running and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like half of my coding time, like more than this 33% is truly just like thinking and staring at my code before actually writing anything. I feel like so much of it is like, why is this working? Or why isn't this working? The contemplating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Another thing that came up here that I thought was interesting was the waiting. So waiting on people I know because there's been times we had systems where it's like, hey, you know, I pushed this. You know, there's this pull request out there. Could you just, and you're kind of waiting. So that I can understand. But also here, there's a lot of waiting, it says, on machines. Is that something either of you experienced at work? Like, I guess, waiting for something to build or waiting for some resources to be available for you? or Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, luckily I don't have to deal with compiled languages anymore, but that definitely used to be a thing where you have to wait for the Java to compile so that you can actually run it. But now it's like waiting for the website to build so you can test yeah. it. Yeah. My problem is like <laughs> I get distracted so easily. I'll be like, you know what? While this is like building and I'm waiting and everything, I'm just gonna like <laughs> scroll through Twitter a little bit, just see what's right. up with my Twitter friends, and then like an hour pass, and I'm an like, oh pass. wait, <laughs> like, oh, I, was no. supposed to, <laughs> I was supposed to be doing something productive, like coding and doing my. You job. need like oh, a big goodness. alert to go off when it's ready for you know like a ding ding, <laughs> yeah. and then you have to yeah. go back. Or no, you need a thing that it automatically closes Twitter when it's ready for you to work on. You know what? Yeah, or something that's like a uh, like a little tune that plays whenever the build is finished. That would be nice. That would help. A me. friend of mine actually wrote some amazing scripts like that recently that were really cool where he he basically made it where he uses the app centered which i've talked about on the podcast mm-hmm. before yeah, that yeah. that like helps you get in flow state and stuff and whenever he has break time it just reopens all his social media and mm. everything and, and it lets him play with whatever he wants and then when there's a minute left he gets like an actual verbal warning from the system and then like slowly the windows just start to close by themselves with the script that he runs. Right. The screen just starts to shrink, shrink, shrink down. Yeah. And, and it just kind of forces him to be just like, okay, it's taken away from me. And I, I thought like it was smart. It's, it's kind of strict on yourself when you have to run it that way, but it works. That's, That's interesting. What I need. Yeah. Need that to <laughs> discipline yourself. All right. I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out another big issue here that was just as high as some of the 
merge conflicts or waiting on people or flaky tests was trouble finding documentation or context. You know, there's this product called Stack Overflow for Teams. You build the whole <laughs> thing. You just search it. It's always there. You can always check it out on the blog. We've got links out to the great products. But the things are, you know, the pain points here are ones that I recognize. But it was interesting. Waiting on machines is actually not something that has really come up on the podcast that often. I, I mean, I totally believe it. But all of these other complaints I've heard people air and that one just hadn't come up. So I was curious about it. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, somebody who came on and helped save some knowledge from the dustbin of history, keep it going for the community so people can learn and grow. Awarded 17 hours ago to Razia Sultana. How do I remove the numbers in an HTML ordered list? All right. Well, thank you, Razia. This question has been around for five years and helped 36,000 people. We appreciate it. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us uh, with explanations about quantum mechanics podcast at Stack Overflow. Or if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. My name is Sierra Ford. I'm going to be a developer advocate at Off Zero. Hooray for Woo! me. Yeah, finally. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. But if you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter. My username there is at Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. And I'm Cassidy Williams. I do developer experience at Remote and OSS Capital. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, on most things. Huzzah. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.